Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest is someone whose mission is to urge you to claim your joy. Trisha Huffman lives with fibromyalgia and wears many hats in empowering people to own who they are every single day. Welcome, Trisha. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Excited to chat with you. So let's start. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So I run a brand that is basically just me, but it's called Your Joyologist. And the mission is to be the reminder, the constant reminder, to basically get out of your own way and to see that you know your feelings of being worthy, enough, successful, fulfilled, lovable are not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, then I'll feel it. You might for a little bit, but if it's outside of yourself, then you're just going to keep chasing it. So for you to claim it for yourself every single day, claim your worth, claim your fulfillment, claim your enoughness, even if like you didn't even get out of bed today, you're still enough (laughs) and that's up to you to claim it. And I do that in many ways. I have a product line. I have a daily inspiration app. I have a podcast. I do coaching. I'm currently writing my first book. Social media, of course, is where I'm very active. And um, I am based in Southern California. I love it. And I remember the first time that I heard a meditation teacher explain the concept of I'll be happy when, you know, fill in the blank and how true that is that everyone can relate to that. When I have X amount of dollars, when I have a certain home, when I, you know, have these things that you think are going to equate to success or happiness. And it often is not the case. Yeah. Even like right now, when COVID disappears, (laughs) everything will be great. You know, like, yes, that's going to be great, but there's still going to be all these other daily struggles to get through. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So let's dig into your health a little bit. You had undiagnosed health issues when you were growing up. Can you walk us through some of those and what symptoms you had? Yeah, it's hard to like even really remember. I remember, you know, as young being in elementary school, like constantly like going to the nurse. And I remember like stomach problems always being a thing because it was like, you know, well, she doesn't have a fever or does it, she doesn't have any like symptoms that we can see. So it always being a struggle with the nurses to even like call my mom or, well, just go back to class. So I remember stomach issues a lot. I don't know if that was early on, but definitely when I started to get older and like high school, just like a lot of like aches and pains and like not being able to sleep. And I started to get migraines, I think around age 15, just really feeling miserable and terrible. And now like I can relate it to sort of like having the flu constantly. But again, there wasn't anything for people to like test or see. So it felt confusing and hard. And I felt very misunderstood all the time. Did you go to doctors or specialists and they just didn't have answers for you? Yeah. And so my mom was a nurse. She worked at a like an outpatient surgery center for most of her career. So because of that, she did work with specialists, you know, so we went to all sorts of doctors. 
uh, when I was 15, I remember going to my pediatrician and like, really, you know, I think my mom finally being like, let's figure out what this is, because it's been going on for years. She's constantly missing school. And we don't know what it is. And I remember crying in my pediatrician's office, who I'd seen my entire life, and who I felt safe with about like all of these things I was feeling. And she didn't tell me that she tried to separate me from my mom, like we were in a room alone, but she wanted to take me away from my parents. And she was like, I think you're being emotionally abused. She told my mom that she thought I was suicidal, which my mom didn't even tell me this until last year. She just told me that the the pediatrician wanted to have me admitted to a mental institution. Because if I was crying in her office at age 15, there must be something mentally wrong with me. Uh, And there was. (laughs) I was really in a lot of pain. And I didn't understand what was going on. And nobody was helping me. But of course, you know, we all have emotional pain. But there was really stuff wrong. So anyway, we never went back to that doctor. (laughs) Good decision. <laughs> and then from there, my mom did start taking me to see, you know, a gastroenterologist. Like I got an upper and lower GI done when I was 15, like went to a urinologist. Like we went to all sorts of specialists because I was having widespread issues, but nothing that was like super targeted. And yeah, nobody could find anything out. They thought, oh, maybe of IBS because there was a lot of stomach problems. I finally at 18 was diagnosed when I went to my mom's general practitioner But he was sick for the day and somebody who had just graduated med school saw me and he is the one that diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. This was in 1999 and he had just gotten out of med school and they just, I guess, come up with this like trigger point testing and stuff. So that is where the diagnosis finally came from. Do you remember that day and getting that diagnosis and what it felt like? Yes and no. I mean, obviously it was a while ago now, but I remember feeling like relief to have a word (laughs) and to be like, see, there is something, you know, I wasn't making it up. And especially like, you know, the pressure point testing, I'm sure people could say that's not true. But like the fact that he did something to my body and it reacted in certain ways, you know, to me that proved something. And so it did feel like a lot of relief. But that also came with like, here's three or four prescriptions to take is what they gave me back then, because that was a very new term. So it was like, here's a muscle relaxer. Here's a like a sleeping pill. Here's a painkiller. And you need to take this antidepressant too, because that somehow will change your body chemistry. And I was like, I don't want to take an antidepressant. So it was all like confusing, but also mostly relief. I had a friend in middle school and high school who had fibromyalgia. And when you said each of those pills, I remember her having those as well. And that in that time, thinking that was the only thing that could help. Yeah. So in recognizing that you didn't really want to be taking all these pills, how did you handle that and navigate what you did to treat yourself? The antidepressant was the one I was really like against because again, I was like, I'm not like, I remember friends of mine in high school at the time, like wanting to get on antidepressants. Like I remember people just being like, it was almost cool. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to do anything like messes with my brain chemistry. Um, So I was resistant, but at the same time, I also didn't feel like I had other answers. So I don't know if I actually took the antidepressant, but the, I do remember, you know, taking the pain pill, taking the sleeping pill, taking different things like that. But I also at the same time went off to college and I moved to Chicago away from my family and was living in the city of Chicago. And I was studying music business. And I was so excited because I just wanted to be in the music world. 
I wanted to do sound, but I didn't know what that was called. So I found a program that did music business. So I was like so excited about leaving home and doing this thing. And I was so, the pills made me feel worse. I was groggy all the time. They didn't, well, maybe they didn't make me feel worse. They masked certain, you know, symptoms, but then gave me more problems in many ways. And so I remember like taking them for a little while and then being like, I feel like I'm like half asleep all day. I can't, you know, it just was not working for me. So I decided to stop taking all pills. And at that point I stopped, like, even now it's hard for me to like take ibuprofen. <laughs> like I sort of was just like, I'm done. Great. I found an answer after years of searching and I have a word for myself, but they didn't really solve any problems for me. They were just like, take some pills. So it really just started with me taking care of myself. Like, okay, what can I eat to make myself feel better? And when I had migraines in high school, I started going to a chiropractor and that really helped. So I did have some exposure to a little bit of alternative healing, although chiropractic is pretty, you know, pretty mainstream. But back then it wasn't really. And I like that there wasn't pills involved. (laughs) So I would use chiropractor and I would feel in so much pain all the time. Like I just wanted to lay down. So it would feel like I can't exercise, but I would go, you know, I joined a gym, get on the elliptical machine. And like for the first 15 minutes, I was miserable, moving so slow. I can't do this. And then like I had hit 15 minutes and feel my body change. All of a sudden, like the pain and tension would just melt away. And so that was something that I would make myself do because as much as it seemed like I can't do this, like I'm so exhausted, my body hurts so much, there's no way I can exercise, I saw that it really helped me. So I made that be a consistent part of my life. And then it did slowly get to like weeding out certain foods and just trying to do everything else. But a lot of it too was like realizing I couldn't do much to control the physical pain, but I saw back then that we cause ourselves so much emotional pain. And so I really, from a young age, I actually almost committed suicide at 15 when all that was like really starting to happen. So I was like, my mom now was like, oh, maybe I needed to listen to your pediatrician, (laughs) which I have a new perspective on. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I'm like, that's an interesting perspective that I just got recently that my mom just told me that like, because she had always told me she wanted to send me to a mental hospital, but not that I was in danger of hurting myself. And I actually was. (laughs) Were you doing certain things or handling things a certain way that presented, you know, that doctor and or your mom? thinking that you were going to do some harm. No, my mom did not at all. And that's why she never told me that and was like, I'm never going back to that lady. She's absolutely wrong. And I don't remember anything in that. You know, now I'm like, hmm, maybe the doctor's instincts were pretty good. And I didn't think so. I've been upset with her (laughs) for all these years because I thought she was making me out to be crazy because of my symptoms. And so I don't know. And that doctor's visit was months after when I finally got really like clear about, you know, like if whether I was going to commit suicide or not, or it was months before, I mean, so it wasn't like close up. But um, I just again, from feeling so misunderstood about having this pain, but also just as being a 15 year old and feeling like these pressures that I think we still as adults have of like, what should we do? Is it okay to like this music even to dress this way? I'm not thin enough. I need to look this way. Why aren't the boys liking me? Why am I not getting picked right away for things? There's a lot of small stuff in life that piles up on us. And then we make it even harder for ourselves to just enjoy our lives. 
So I had this moment where I did often, since I couldn't sleep, would be like awake at night and thinking like of ways that maybe I could just end my life and that would be better. And I got really close to it one day and I just like got really clear to myself that like, if I'm going to live, I'm either going to do this and go through with this plan or I'm going to live my life a different way. Like if I'm going to choose to be alive and I'm going to choose to be alive and I'm done with like trying to care so much about what everybody else may or may not think about me. I just felt so misunderstood and lonely, even though I had so many friends. Like I was a popular kid. (laughs) I was good at soccer. I got good grades. I had jobs. I like, I was a popular kid, but I felt so lonely and misunderstood and just like wanting people to like me. So I just like started moving through life in a different way. And that really helped me. And that's, you know, what made me be able to even like move to Chicago and try to like go after something I was passionate about when I still felt like crap every day. But it like gave me something to live for because I was choosing to live every day. Do you remember when you made that decision that you were going to choose to live and what that looks like? Yeah, I was locked in my bathroom, like having a mental breakdown really feeling like I was mad at life and at my family and at everyone. And so it was like, okay, like, this is it. Are you going to do it? Are you going to end your life? And I like, yeah, just had this sort of like, if I'm so serious about taking my life, like I have to try it a different way. And I like, got in the shower and turned the water on as hot as it would go and just like cried and cried and cried for like until the water ran out and my skin was like bright red from water being so hot. And that was it. (laughs) Did your friends know that this was going on and that you had fibromyalgia? No. So that was before I was diagnosed. Uh, Nobody knew anything. And that was part of it too, because I would miss a lot of school because I just like sort of gotten to understand with my parents of like, okay, Trisha, whatever, you know, I think they were kind of just like over it too. And they were unhappy in their marriage. My sister moved away to college. Like they didn't want to fight with me anymore about going to school. So I, it would be rare if I went to school five days a week, you know, it's, I'd usually miss at least one day a week, but I got good grades and I played, so- like I checked the boxes. So it's like, even though they didn't like what I was doing, they also were like, I guess she really is in pain. And she still gets her grade sent or whatever. And I remember going to school after missing school, and nobody ever even like really asked me about myself or how I felt or anything like so again, like it was just feeling misunderstood. And like, does anybody even care if I'm here? So that was added to the why don't I just end my life pile. I'm so glad that you didn't and that you're here with us today. And doing the kind of work that you're doing for yourself and for so many others, before you got into the career that you're in, as you mentioned, you were in the music world and you were a touring sound manager. How was managing your health and your pain during that time? I made my like dream come true, which was to be a sound engineer, which is the person at live concerts controlling the sound. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And yeah, again, I believe because I had some sort of passion that even though so many people didn't believe in me and understand what I was doing, like I had something that excited me that I wanted to do. And that made me be able to make it happen because I did feel like miserable, but I wanted to do this. So again, it was like choosing to do this. So when I was touring, it's like can look like it's glamorous, but it's like 18 hour days and you're sleeping on a tour bus and 
or maybe you're like sleeping a couple hours and then flying and traveling out of suitcases. So I really did have to like prioritize my health. And um, I brought a juicer on the road for me. Like I had my own rider, which is basically like, you know, anytime an artist requests, oh, I want these things to be in the dressing room, you know, like their favorite foods or in drinks and stuff like they need to perform. Like I had to have my own rider as a sound engineer, which definitely was like, I had to like get over myself and make this be a necessity because it's also like, oh, well, they're not going to want to hire me if they're like, look at her. She's so hard to deal with. She needs these things when they could just hire some other guy because also it was very rare to be a female sound engineer. Like 10 people have ever made it to the level I was at. Um, and then, <laughs> oh, she's a girl. And then they can make up, oh, she's not probably even going to be like help with the pushing the cases and stuff like that because she's a girl. And then she needs these things. So I, <laughs> but I believed in myself and this is what I needed to take care of myself. So yeah, so I would like tour with my own juicer and they would have uh, vegetables there for me every day to juice. In 2004, I took the advice of a friend who had other medical issues, but his doctor had put him on a vegan and gluten-free diet. And the gluten-free was like back then was unheard of. And I was just sort of like, what are you talking about? I am super healthy because I thought I you know, ate really healthy to take care of my health. So I was like, I eat 100% whole wheat everything. I can't not eat. Like, what would I even eat? And he came to visit me and I saw back then even like, okay, oh, you can have Indian food, you just have rice, you don't have the bread. Like, you know, I saw him eating our favorite foods and just like omitting things. And I had read some very small note in some nutritional or like medical or like natural healing book. Like it was like an asterisk at the bottom. <laughs> Not eating gluten could reduce the symptoms of fibromyalgia. <laughs> like very small. And so like that stayed with me, but I was like, well, that doesn't seem like anything to do. And then when he came to town, I tried it and, you know, 10 days to the day, because I've heard it took 10 days to get to your system, I woke up for the first time in my life without feeling pain. Like normally I'd have to do yoga for an hour, do all these things to try to feel okay first. And it was the first day in my life that I woke up feeling like I could just get out of bed with ease. So then I had I committed to that fully. So then I'm on tour, own juicer. You have to have gluten-free meals. I think at that time I also maybe was vegan or just particular about what protein I was eating. So it was easier to say vegan. So they had to make special meals for me. I would go grocery shopping on my own and have like all this extra stock on the bus as well to take care of myself. We'd get to the venue, roll off the tour bus. I'd wake up before everybody else and do yoga outside the tour bus while they were loading in the gear <laughs> until it was my turn to do sound. So I did, I had to prioritize my health in order to feel good and to keep living my dream. I love that so much. And what was the response to you taking care of yourself in this way? Because yeah, I know the writer situation. I used to work in events and in PR and have definitely had celebrities asking for certain color M&Ms and <laughs> other bullshit like that. But this is something serious and you clearly you know, needed to commit to this in order to do your job properly and well and feel good. So did you get any, you know, sort of backlash or have any conversations with either the musicians or the other staff about, you know, how you were taking care of yourself or the time you needed to take away to do things that maybe got in the way? Did it get in the way? You know, I'm sure behind the scenes that there might have been some like rumblings from the production managers or assistants that had to like advance those things perhaps, oh, yeah, we need a gluten. Yes, we do. You know, like we really, cause you have to, they have to talk to every single venue we're going to. 
so that might have been a stressor for them, but nobody ever said anything to me. And I think like some of the other guys might have teased me about it or like, oh, there's Trisha with her juicer or stuff like that. But I also now looking back, realize that I didn't come from a place of like an ego or anything. Like I really was just grounded in this is what I need. And I, I felt nervous to do these things and ask for these things. But then I just showed up in the way I think I asked for things and also just my way of being that most people then were just sort of like, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, look at her. She does yoga. Oh, she's juicing. Can I have some of that? Like that they were just interested in that. I also never like judged anybody else on the tour for their choices or shamed them for what they were eating or anything like that too. And so nobody really, it didn't feel like anybody did that to me. Of course there would be jokes. So like, Oh, what's Trisha was drinking or, you know, drinking some green powder mixed in water thing and like stuff like that. But the fear is more in the asking, how dare I, they won't like me, they're not going to take me on tour. How dare I ask for these things that I need to take care of myself. And I really don't think I had any pushback at all. That's great. It's like our internal pushback. (laughs) That was like the hardest thing to getting through. Like, no, I have to ask for this. I have to prioritize this. Yeah. And realizing that it's a non-negotiable in order for you to do what you need to do. Yeah. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's better com slash made visible. And now back to the show. So you did that for how long that job? Almost 10 years. And then my father passed away suddenly. And that shook me up more than I ever expected. And that really got me to see, you know, like I don't had my own waking me at 15 when I almost took my life about like choosing to live. And then when my father passed away suddenly from an accident, like I just wanted to shake everybody else up. Like I felt like I have done such a good job. Good job, Trisha. You've done such a good job of taking care of yourself, your mental well-being. You made your dreams happen. You take care of your body. You are living your dream. (laughs) But look at all these other people that are just walking around and you can tell that they're not happy. They're not fulfilled. And even I would notice, you know, I was living my dream and I was on tour with people that were singer songwriters who wrote their own songs, were performing them for sold out arenas around the world, could fly on private jets, do whatever they wanted. Like they had it all. But I would see that, oh, they still don't look like they're fulfilled. They get frustrated. They have fears. They have doubts. They're questioning their enoughness all the time. They're taking other people's advice of what move they should do next instead of like trusting themselves. 
And so that was a big awakening for me that I was like, I have to do more with my life. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but it ended up being that I created a new role for myself back on tour because that was the world I knew. And that was where the joyologist term was born. And so I created a new position on tour, taking care of the artists and other people on the tour that were wanting it, but mainly the artists to keep them grounded and healthy in body and mind. And they also then turned to me and gave me the term manager of integrity. But it was, you know, I actually, when I first went out in that role as a joyologist, I created a road case kitchen. And so then I started making all of their meals, vegan and gluten-free. I got certified as a yoga teacher and would teach yoga every day. I put affirmations up in the room and would also be like the person talking them through things. So basically all the things that I had learned to do for myself, I then took on the road to do for the artists that I worked for in a new role. That is super cool. So how did you even come up with that concept? And who did you pitch it to that said, yes, let's do this? The concept like took some time because when my father passed away, I was about to start a world tour. Like I was a couple months in and we were about to go to Australia. I still kept touring and then I was a mess. And so I was like, I'm done doing sound. I can't do this anymore. Uh, Gave my job up. And that was like, in March, March or April of the year. So I would have been on tour for two years touring this album. And I could have just said, I need a break. Can I have somebody fill in for with me for like a month or two weeks? And something in me was like, no, I'm done with sound. And I didn't know at all what I was going to do. <laughs> but I somehow got the like message that I was done with the word should. And I didn't think I lived a life of shoulds at all. But I just got this message of I was done using the word should. And so that actually ended up changing my life completely. And I would switch out the word should for want. And so every day then I was starting to ask myself, oh, what do I want to do? What should I eat? What do I want to eat? And just that very small word shift got me to actually start dreaming about possibilities for myself. It showed me so much. I'm writing a book right now about eliminating the word should from your life because of all the many things that are tied to it. But that is what helped me to visualize, like, what would I want to do for other people? Like, what do I want to do with my life? I feel like my life mission is so much bigger, but what am I going to do? All I've ever done is sound and toured with, like, worked in production. And so then it was just, like, looking back at touring is a lot of work. And, you know, seeing these people and seeing, like, that catering isn't that great and the dressing rooms, you know, aren't that great. And everybody's stressed out and the artists will get upset or have a bad day and then they just go slam the door and nobody talks about it. So everybody's walking around on eggshells. And I just took all of that and then my passion for taking care of myself <laughs> and created this new role. And, um, and Jason Mraz was the first person that hired me in that role. And he's mostly who I ended up working with doing that just because once he had that experience, then he wanted me on all the tours. (laughs) That's incredible. And I'm totally with you on the should and now really can't wait to read your book. It's been something that in being a business coach, which is something I do separate from the podcast, is always uh, 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 reframe that, reframe that. Yeah, it's so major. Get it out of your vocabulary. I was watching your YouTube series on I Call Bullshit. And the most recent one, one of the first things you did was have uh, should and you did air quotes, which is exactly how I reference it. 
And I think it's such an important thing to realize what you think you should be doing in the world as opposed to taking control and actually, as you said, doing what you want and taking initiative with that. So now you help people claim their joy and you're not doing it on tour with people anymore. What does that look like and why is it so important for you to do? Yeah, so I got off tour several years ago because I knew I wanted to have a family. (laughs) And um, I try to do it in as many different ways as I can. Like I said, I've made the product line. I have a daily inspiration app. I have that I call bullshit video and social media posts, the app. I have rope coaching and one-on-one coaching still. You know, I think the biggest thing to remember is just like, you know, saying we have to claim it that our feelings of enoughness, self-worth, success aren't out there somewhere. It's something like you have to remember moment to moment and that we're humans. And so there's never going to be like some moment where like, I got it. I have it all figured out. I believe in myself. You know, I'm choosing my life. So it's good. We're good now. Like, (laughs) there's never going to be any struggles or doubts or fears anymore. (laughs) Like, it's this constant remembering because these things will just keep showing up. Shoulds will keep coming up. All the stuff will keep happening. Life keeps happening and throwing you turns. And so it's really like a moment to moment thing. So I want to be that constant reminder because it's for myself. Like, you know, most everything that I'm sharing are reminders for myself too. And I always share from like a very personal, real spot and not like, hey, everybody, I figured out everything. I got all your answers. Just listen to me. Like, the reason I have anything figured out is because I'm calling out my own bullshit constantly. (laughs) Like when I'm calling bullshit, I'm calling out myself. And then I bet you're dealing with this too. Like I gave up the word should over 10 years ago, but I still feel the weight of it daily. And not even from just other people saying it to me, like the should comes up as a feeling. But since I'm so tuned into that word, then I'm so tuned into that energy. So I'm constantly like, is this a should or is this a want? Why am I doing this? What is motivating me to do this? And so it keeps me really in line. But again, I just am so aware that like whatever I'm struggling with, I am not alone. And so that's what keeps me sharing and creating things and keeps speaking up. I think that's really relatable, especially for those of us living with invisible illness and feeling alone and isolated is a really common thing to go through while living with a chronic illness. You mentioned to me that living with a chronic illness has taught you many lessons. Can you talk a little bit more about what those lessons have been? Yeah. I mean, the biggest one would probably just be the fact that like, I have to put myself first and I have to take care of myself even when it feels uncomfortable or I'm feeling like I'm being too much or how dare I ask for this or, but I'm a good friend. I'm a good person. So I want to show up for other people and I want to say, yes, I'm a mother. So I have to put my kids first. But because of the reality of how I feel in my body in that way, I feel the invisible illness and the fibromyalgia has been a gift because I can't like, I know what it's like, you know, everybody knows what it's like to push yourself over the boundaries, right? And then your body totally checks out and you crash. But I think people with invisible illness can feel that even more so. And so I just am also seeing like, if I try to sacrifice my own health and my own joy for other people, it won't work. It will backfire because I will end up crashing and burning. So I won't be able to be there for them. Whether it's my kids, you know, saying yes to a podcast, whatever it is, only help these people that are in need. They need, you know, they need help more than I do. Whatever it is that your reason is for sacrificing yourself, 
to realize if I am sacrificing myself in order to help someone else or be there for someone else, like I'm not going to actually be showing up fully. They're going to get a burned out version for me, a crashed and burned version for me. I'm going to end up crashing and burning so that I won't be able to do the actual work and help the people that I want to help. So in that way, that's been the biggest gift for me because I see now it still can be a struggle for me, but I see people that don't have that really struggling. Like in like Kate Northrup, you know, I and her mission lately with do less and that book, like I'm like, thank goodness someone mm-hmm. <laughs> is like teaching other people that you that don't have these illnesses that they're struggling with, that they don't have to just keep going, 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 burning each other out. We have to keep moving everybody like that's what proves we're enough and worthy because we're doing, doing, doing. And so that was a lesson I learned early on. I love how you say that because it's like, it's thinking about how people assume that by hustling and showing that they're hustling, that they're successful and it gives them more worth by doing more. But you're really saying it's more about your being, which I love. Knowing that you recognize that you need to put yourself first, what does a day in your life look like, especially as it relates to managing your business, obviously your children and taking care of your well-being? I have, you know, some routines worked out that change. Um, And so it varies different per day, though, based on how I'm feeling. And so I also like have room for that. And that room for it is mostly, again, the permission that I'm allowed to listen to myself and allowed to change my routines and my schedule based on how I feel. And that it doesn't mean that I'm like being lazy or, you know, something by changing. I do (laughs) ideally... um, and this would not happen every day, but I do try to wake up before my kids and do any minutes of yoga because <laughs> it really does change how I feel in my body and my mind. And lately, that's 20 minutes. And I think, too, like a lot of things that can keep us from doing the things that make us feel better are by feeling like it's going to take so much time and I don't have the time or the effort for that. And so, like, any minutes is more than no minutes is one of my main mantras. Do five minutes of yoga, do five minutes of walking around your block, you know, like whatever it is. So I do try to do that for myself in the morning. And then my kids wake up, I'm with them. And then I have my like morning work time that we're doing now with, (laughs) with the COVID lockdown. So their dads are with them in the morning. And I have my work time. And, and yeah, I just I make sure that my calendar isn't too overwhelmingly booked so that if there is that I'm not feeling so great, or if I feel like I need to be more introspective than being out in the world and those that so I have things set up to be done, but I make sure to give myself freedom. I love the concept of some minutes is better than no minutes. That is incredible and such a good reminder. I think when people think about meditation and yoga and so many other things like that, they assume it has to be an hour class or something really, really substantial. And it really doesn't have to be that way. Such a great way to put it. Yeah. And I'll use that. I mean, I still like my body will be having a harder day and this will happen all the time where I'll be like, oh, you know, sometimes you can tell your body, okay, I'm just going to rest today. But sometimes like, even when I feel like crap, I can kind of tell my body wants movement, even though I feel miserable, but it can feel so hard because you feel like crap. And so just the like, hey, what about just five minutes, just 10 minutes? Like I have a Peloton bike. Some days 30 minutes is like impossible, but I'm like, let me just try a 20 minute class. And it's miraculous how much different I will feel after 20 minutes. But I was just going to blow off moving my body because, well, I can't do a 30-minute class. (laughs) 
It's like you really can feel so much different after just a couple minutes. I agree, especially like in these COVID days, I recognize the importance of getting out and going for a walk, no matter what, you know, my day looks like, I need to get out of the house, I need to move my body. And again, if it's 10 minutes, if it's 20 minutes, if it's an hour, all of it makes a difference. So one of the things I wonder is how you communicate with your family, with your friends, with your clients you know, the importance of taking care of yourself through this all and ensuring that you feel seen when you're struggling. Yeah, that last part is, um, it still can be a challenging one because I honestly can still struggle in relationships about people understanding like when I am having, because I mostly, and how I take care of myself, am able to like feel manageable. Like I wouldn't say I feel great every day, but my version of great. And then sometimes, yeah, I have, times that are harder. And when that happens, it can still be really hard for me because I have created myself to be someone who's very strong and independent and bold. And so that's what the people in my life see me as. And so then they don't necessarily like jump to help me or jump to ask me what's wrong. And I can start to make that be a big deal about, again, nobody understands me, nobody believes me. And so what I've really had to do in my life is ask for more support. And that's hard for me, like, because I have done so much for myself and on my own. And so then again, it can feel like, why doesn't it, I can go back to being young again, and feeling like nobody believes me and nobody cares about me is what I turn that into. And when I live into that, that just makes it all worse and more isolating. and <laughs> doesn't help the pain. <laughs> and so it's really like, teaching people that you do need help and that, you know, it can be hard, but that to asking for help, you know, like sometimes it can be so hard for me even to like ask my partner to bring me a cup of water. I really relate to that. I really do. Cause I feel similarly in the independent category and I've done this, you know, with the support of my mom when I was younger, especially and throughout my life, but in general, you know, keeping my friends updated on my health and them just being like, I'm sorry, that sucks or whatever it is. And then being like, but I want more, like yeah. I want more of a response here without them feeling bad for me. What is it that I need? Because I need to verbalize this because, you know, I've said this hundreds of times on the podcast, there is no manual for how to deal with this stuff. And nobody understands, you know, and it's, I think the grief of my father has taught me so much in so many ways because grief is so unpredictable and nobody can understand it. And even though I have experienced this great grief, when I know somebody that then goes through something similar or loses somebody What I see now is while I know my grief and my huge version of it, I can't even understand theirs because grief is so unpredictable and unique. And that's what invisible illnesses are or just illness in general. But for some reason, if we know somebody that has cancer, everybody can automatically snap into that's horrible, even though we don't actually maybe know what cancer feels like in the body. It's just like the term. But these other terms we don't know what those are. And so they just, okay, I'm sorry. But people don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> like even maybe people with different invisible diseases, like, cause you don't actually maybe know how it shows up in your life or unless somebody has the same thing as you. And so like, I just had to give myself a ton of compassion, but also show that compassion to other people because I want to go to nobody's taking care of me. Nobody understands me. Nobody cares about me and make that be their fault and just have compassion for them and then also have to open the door and be like, 
yeah, he doesn't read your mind to know that you want water. Sure, if you were taking care of somebody else, you would be checking in on them and asking them if you don't want water. But that's not what's happening right now. So ask for water. And instead of being like yelling, why haven't you asked for water? Nobody takes care of me, which is what can happen. (laughs) So like, just actually be like, hey, this is really hard. It feels hard. Like, I know you can understand this pain, but just even like trying to understand it and try to come from a compassionate place and have compassion for them because they don't understand it at all. So not to be like, this is my problem, not theirs. But you know, like, I found that myself that I would just keep building more walls and making myself believe nobody cares about me. I agree, definitely resonates with me. And I really love the concept of recognizing how not valuable it is when people say, I know how you feel. It is like the few words that just destroy me that no one knows how you feel. As you reference your grief, you know, you know how you felt, but everyone processes things differently. And everyone's case of fibromyalgia is different. And everyone's cancer diagnosis is different. uh, And how it manifest in your body and in your mind and in your emotions. So I love that you recognize, as I think many people can relate who are listening to the concept of, you know, speaking up and advocating for yourself because no one can read your mind. Um, I did want to say I have a good answer for the like how I share with people about how to take care of like prioritizing themselves. For me, it's just seeing like, okay, so imagine you take care of yourself, you do those things that make you feel great. And, you know, like, so how do you feel? Like you do the yoga, you do the, whatever it is that makes you feel great. Like visualize yourself then, like you're grounded, you're radiating, you're present, you're relaxed, you're at ease, whatever that is. Now visualize yourself when you don't do those things and you're like running around trying to do all the things for the other people or whatever it is. Like when you don't take care of yourself, what do you look like? You're frazzled, you know, you can't get out of bed. You can't even think straight. You snap at your kids. So which version of you would you like the world to see? Like which version of you would you want your kids to have? Which version of you don't your partner have? Which version do you want your boss to see? What version do you want of people to know you out in the world? Probably the one that's like shining and vibrant and present, right? So you taking care of yourself is not selfish at all. It's like the least selfish thing you can do because it's not just for you. It's for every single person you come into contact with. Such an amazing note to end on. I love that so much. Trisha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. How can people learn more about you, work with you, listen to your podcast, buy your products, all that good stuff? Yeah, everything is at yourjoyologist.com. And I'm most active on Instagram at yourjoyologist. And um, yeah, my podcast is Claim It. But yeah, you can find links to all the things and offerings at yourjoyologist.com. And we'll be sure to include them in the show notes. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Amanda Grisillo for the design.